The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Pease, is a universal spiritual teacher sharing his wisdom through workshops, seminars, and as an author. He talks today to his life, work, and latest book, Spiritual Bootcamp. My guest today is an established authority in metaphysical science, global consciousness, and spirituality. His work as a spiritual teacher, advisor, and transformational life coach has received international recognition. As a motivational speaker, he brings an extraordinary passion for life, bringing an awakening and transformation to people around the world. He's also a radio host and author with his latest book, Spiritual Boot Camp, now among a long list of publications. He quoted recently, We now live in a world where we are collectively becoming aware that consciousness is reality, and realizing the potential we each possess to create in our sacred place. No longer content with the dream state of which we called our lives, many are awakening to a new sense of awareness that surrounds and comfortably consumes them. Dr. Robert Pease, welcome to you today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, sir. Can I start off, uh, Robert, uh, with your childhood, please? I always do this to my guests. I always take them back to their childhood, and, uh, and I'm sure that you've looked at our notes um, could you tell me about a, a bit about your childhood, where you were raised, what sort of environment it was? Well, um, it was a it was an extreme environment. Actually, I was I would consider my childhood sort of in the journey of post traumatic stress syndrome from like day one on. <laughs> I uh, didn't really start speaking till I was almost four years of age. They thought there was something wrong with me because uh, I wouldn't talk. And in those days, now we're talking about the early, way early 50s, I was born in 52. They didn't really, they had not done a, a great deal of research into uh, why, you know, this happens with children. But when I did begin to talk, <clears throat> I was using complete sentences. I was one of those kind of kids. Now we have, that's sort of a standard of children today, but uh, then it was kind of extraordinary, I guess. And from that moment forward, it was always just a matter of more and more of that kind of thing. I was raised in Houston, Texas. Um, my parents um, were, you know, I would guess lower middle class. My, we lived in a one-room apartment. My father was an, an alcoholic, and my mother was a workaholic, so I never saw either one of them. And so most of my time was left up to my own devices, uh, my own imagination, so to speak. And, um, you know, it went on from there. So it was kind of horrific in some states. You know, I was saying, David, to you when we first talked that um, uh, I was, you know, abused sexually from like 8 to 12. Um, I spent time in mental institutions because of trying to kill myself uh, as a child, and they didn't recognize that sort of relationship to children. Again, in the 50s, kids were not 
trying to kill themselves and get off the planet in the uh, late 50s, or it wasn't considered a norm. So the, the mental institutions I was put in were for adults, so I spent most of my day around adults instead of other kids um, discussing the world and seeing the level of pain and suffering that was actually going on on the planet through the eyes of an adolescent. So it was an extraordinary journey of, 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 in my childhood. It, do, you, do you believe that childhood literally paves the way for our whole lives. Um, well, it, it, I, set, it sets up such a premise, particularly when you look at the kids today. Goodness only knows. Um, it, it, it certainly does shape your life. And, then, and, and thereafter, you have to make a mental note and you have to say, I'm either going to be victorious or I'm going to sink in this. Well, yes, I would. I mean, it's been suggested by our leading scientists that um, and metaphysical doctors that you know the impressions that we 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 acquire visually in our world will somehow attach to us, and we will uh, be challenged by those. But as I've gotten to where I am today, I look at it in a totally different perspective. I see that. If we, you know, we, we had to develop a premise that we picked our parents, which became a very popular logo in the late 60s, early 70s, meaning that really we're, we are cultivating our, the nature of our own personal reality. And it even suggests that as children, we are creating and cultivating uh, a perceived reality based on probably past experiences that we now call reincarnation. So I've kind of, you know, moved into a different way of thinking and acting than I would have probably been normally uh, normalized as a, a younger person because that kind of the, uh, the, the idea that, you know, we are shaped by an environment outside of ourselves alludes to sort of an idea that we are victimized or bullied by external causes that then shape our world. And I don't believe that there's anything as a victim or a bully, except what we create in our own mind. I was interested with your biography, uh, Robert. You, you, you talked about your journey starting, in, starting at an early age. Uh, and are, are you suggesting by this that your journey was away from the norm, away from other kids in your neighborhood? And, and I was suggesting actually in my notes that possibly your journey was talking about a journey that was not in the materialistic world. It, it, was, uh, it was on a completely different plane from a very early age, which was induced because of this insular position that you found yourself in with your parents. Could have been. Um, yeah, again, you know, now that we know so much about how insular most kids' positions are with their parents, especially today with everybody working. But for me, I think that when I, I see a difference, only in the sense that, you know, not that I'm unique or uh, unusual by any means, but because of the, the, what they later would say was my vivid imagination, as a child, um, I was talking a lot to imaginary friends. I had uh, very clear imaginary friends uh, that were very real to me. They spoke to me. They, I saw them. Uh, they ta taught me a lot, a lot of the material that I would learn about later as I got, uh, got older. I was educated at a very young age about. Uh, so that was, and I thought that everybody had that. I thought everyone talked to 
people other than the people that we call our parents or the people that are in our neighborhood, people that simply appeared in my room, both in the daytime and at nighttime, and sometimes in my classroom. So the teachers would find it very disturbing because I would be sitting in the class talking to someone that they could not see. Well, you you talk about uh, being in your own world, singing and talking to yourself. Mm -hmm. Were you recognizing at this very young age that that actually was a sign uh, about your early development, about your position and your consciousness and and how you needed to grow in yourself into later years? Perhaps. I think uh, what helped that, uh, David, was that the, the, the voices or the people that I, were ta- I was talking to uh, would affirm with me that that was but what uh, later years when I questioned, why can't my friends see you? Why can't my parents talk to you? And they would say, because they choose not to see us. They choose not to see this other part of themselves. And so there was all this ongoing dialogue, I mean, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age, where there was many questions, Q&As that I would have in discussion about the world, the universe, uh, uh, how things are, why things are, who's God, what God is, what are angels. I mean, I was having, I guess, conversations that, you know, most kids weren't having. They were skipping rope and playing with dolls and going to school and going to swim class. Who, who were those conversations with? Well, later on, uh, what I've recognized with all of that, because, again, we're looking back, you know, 50 years in my life, uh, I'm 58 uh, this week, that, you know, we're talking 50 years ago and having the impression of what was going on then compared to who I am today as a different human being. But my impression today of looking back at that time was that I was pretty much talking to my higher self or that those the multidimensional aspects of who I am or who we all are uh, in this extraordinary movie we call life where we are playing out all different kinds of roles past, present, and future of ourselves simultaneously, and I was kind of connected in, and still am. I, I teach mental time traveling in my imagined workshops, but then I did not I did not understand it or extrapolate it as mentally time traveling into my past and future and present self. So let me ask you this, uh, before we move into your, your young adulthood, looking back, did you learn to forgive your parents, did you learn to let go of that time um, by necessity? Yes, I was actually told that forgiveness was the only journey that would allow us to let go of this illusion that we are attached to. In other words, everything that we see, and now there's a lot of work on this. We can talk about the Bhagavad Gita uh, and the Vedas. We can go all the way to modern times and look at even A Course in Miracles. This story or this uh, theme moves through all of our, uh, our cultural aspects and our spirituality and every religion, but what it suggests to me is that, and was always suggested to me, that the loophole to getting out of the madness that is life, and here's, here's, here's the crazy examples that I can give you. As a child, I would be taken on journeys, and, um, you know, I, in my teens I studied astral projection because I was trying to put a label on it or a name on it or figure out how I was doing it, what the difference was between being in dream state when I was asleep and being awake um, you know, and then I learned, I've learned that there is no difference. That we're, we're just constantly in a dream state, and we have a moments that we are aware of it. But for me as a child, one of the things that I would, what I would re- see or realize is that 
that I was separate and that everything was in its separateness. And there was all this duality and reality and that I could see the link between everybody around me almost like a cord connected to their bodies. And it almost felt like, if I, when, I, when I could look at it then and still describe it today, is that, you know, we're using new terminology like holographic, but it was like a movie. I felt like we were projections. We were, we were on a screen and that our bodies were just the projections that were coming from, you know, a, a, a light that was coming from like a camera. In other words, very much like the title of the movie Avatar, but not anything to do with the movie Avatar, that we uh, and ourselves and our body form are avatars and being manipulated by something else. And then beyond that something else, there was a greater reality that uh, I longed for and wanted to know more of. So this theme played has played out through my whole life, and it's played out in all my work and uh, the things that I love to do and the things that I've studied. Do you think that in a way that that early period was an insecurity for you? Uh, is there any insecurity in, in, in that world then? I mean, was it a world of hurt that, that, that moved you into doing what you did? Well, you know, I didn't know that my world was horrific. You know, for me, uh, like most children or most people, whatever we grow up in is we identify as being normal. Um, uh, uh, women and children who are beat and abused in marriages, uh, their fathers and mothers beat them when they were children. They move into marriages that are later the same kind of marriages. They don't know there's anything different from that. But their fear factor may or may not be any different than anybody else's. I, I definitely know that I was comfortable in a lot of the world. What I had issue with is that I definitely believe that uh, there was no love. And I think that my whole journey later in life was all about being in search of that. And that's what led to such world travel and study and so many other things that I've done. So you know, I brought with me that journey, I think, into life because my mother definitely loved me uh, unconditionally to the day she died <clears throat> around my 50th birthday. She was always very present in that state and st uh, stable form for me. But, you know, I was always a personality, too. I always had friends, and I was charismatic growing up and very successful, very young in life. So I always felt comfortable with that illusion, but I, I, it never satisfied me. Life, there always seemed to be something else that was greater than all this materialism in the land of more that, um, believe me, I acquired a great deal of as I grew up, that always seemed insignificant. There always seems like it was never going to satisfy something that was deeper and long, more of a longing to me, but it was very important to have to see why. So in other words, you were, you were seeking a world outside of the material world that we live in today, and that was your goal your your objective and did you did you find that as you went out of your teens uh, into your 20s uh, when you were in education or when you were in bigger circles what occurred then how how did that manifest how did you how did that manage to become a reality uh, in in attaining that goal well, at very at a very young age, I was uh, very mature and very sophisticated, and pretty much left home when I was thirteen, going on fourteen. <clears throat> I was out of the educational system by seventh grade uh, because of the meds and the medical uh, background. The schools did not were not comfortable with me with me in them, and I wasn't comfortable being in them. So I pretty much struck out on my own and went to work as a teenager. Uh, interesting enough, I went back to school and to college at seventeen, going on eighteen. 
at the same time that most other kids were going into college. But I missed the whole junior high and high school reality. I was out working in the field, uh, running gas stations and all sorts of stuff, um, wild stuff. But uh, the interesting thing about that time is that I loved that uh, my teen years because it allowed me to have a sense of freedom that I had not felt as a, uh, before that. Um, and I did a lot of reading. I've always been a great reader. I mean, I was reading Herman Hesse, Siddhartha, all these books when I was in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. I was re- um, that, that time period when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, uh, the, studying the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, learning languages, um, having sort of this extraordinary internalized life. Reading the Bible, I went to different churches when I was a kid. I wanted to experience everything. And from a, a very young age, my goal uh, that I wanted was awareness. That's all I ever wanted. I wanted to be aware. And that I believed that that awareness would get me out of here, get me out of this insanity that we call uh, the universe that we've created. Could, could not some uh, uh, schools of thought suggest in a way that that's running? Well, yes, it was definitely, I was running towards something instead of away from something. I was running towards, uh, you know, the uh, light. I wanted to, you know, I kind of came in knowing that there's something greater than all of this and that, you know, and not to condemn it, not to, you know, judge it. And, of course, I went through many years in my maturation process of judging the experience. I was attached to it. I was definitely connected to what Eckhart Tolle talks about as the pain body, uh, and yet I was having this extraordinary experience growing up and being able to travel around the world. I spent 18 years touring the world when most people were, you know, getting ready for uh, uh, life after college, getting married, having kids, and growing up. I was often going. So, yes, I was definitely running, and I was running as fast as I could to what I believed was, you know, a deeper understanding. I mean, I was in transcendental meditation when I was 17. Um, you know, I was meditating. I was doing yoga. And, you know, we're talking about the, the mid-60s here. I mean, all this is popular now, and there were people doing it at that time, but it was not as prevalent as it is today. It wasn't a common ground. So, you know, I thought I was doing something in an effort to allow myself to be become more aware, even though with all of that came all the attachment and the struggles that I faced um, or later on in my life. Very briefly, before we just hit that, that period where you, you travel for 17 or 18 years, I was really interested, uh, and I'm referring to, uh, again back to your notes, your biography. In my teen years, I spent hours visiting the Museum of Fine Arts or the Zoo, two places I felt safe and joyful. I could talk to myself, talk to the trees, to the animals, and listen to what they were telling me. Even the paintings in the museum talked to me. My first enormous revelation as a young adult occurred when I went to see the paintings, jewelry, and artifacts of Salvador Dali. His imagination sparked something inside of my being. Um, and, and you go on to say, I heard a voice to me, you know, nothing is what it seems. What, what is that suggesting? What, what are you saying there? Well, I, it, you know, I always heard this inner voice reminding me that, what, that nothing was what it appeared to be. And, you know, as a, a young teenager, I did not really, I did not comprehend what that meant because, 
you know, and I was glad that nothing would it appeared to be because I found that there was a lot being sort of very sensitive and very, now we use words like intuitive, but I would say that at that time I was definitely empathic. I was tapped into feelings and, and a little bit of ESP. I mean, I would, could read people's minds and read their feelings and kind of know them and what they were thinking or feeling was different than what they were appearing to show in their outer self. And, 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 and that was, and sorry to interrupt. That's Robert, okay. But that was reinforced by the, the Salvador Dali, by that, that art, by the momentum that you get through art, I'm assuming. That, that uh, was a sort of a catalyst in a way. Oh, yes. I, I found peace of mind in parks and zoos and museums. Um, I would, uh, one of the reasons I was stopped going to school is because my mother would drive me to school in the morning. I would walk in and walk out the back door, and I would have the whole day to spend, you know, uh, being somewhere other than school because I couldn't go home, and where I and I had no money in, the, in, the, in those days, you know, bus fare basically, and I would go and hang stay, spend all day at the museum, uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, Texas, actually, which is right next to the uh, muse, uh, Houston Zoo and the large Herman Park area, which is Midtown downtown. Uh, so I had this wonderful park to sit in, and I could sit under the trees and talk with the trees and listen to the their sort of, I don't know, energetic voice. And, uh, you know, the animals were everywhere. We had tons of, we have tons of animals in Houston. And then go to those, uh, the, the museum and sort of roam around in these vast rooms with all this sort of energetic art that was painted, of course, in different periods of time with, you know, wardrobe and, and scenery and sets of, of places that were like portals to another time. And that's what I felt like I was in when I was in the museum. I felt like each one of those paintings was a doorway uh, that led me into another place, um, you know, of, you know, who we are as humans. And I would explore that. And one time I went at, I was, I, I think I was barely 14, and Salvador Dali had been commissioned by Tiffany and Cartier. I can't ever remember it now. I think it was Cartier, but maybe it was Tiffany. But I think it was Cartier uh, commissioned him to design three-dimensional objects out of his surrealistic work, that two-dimensional paintings. And they had this huge exhibition of all of his work in jewelry. It was all like there was a heart muscle. It wasn't a heart like shaped like the symbolic heart that we make today for Valentine's Day, but it was the muscle of the heart. It was that large. It was as big as a huge fist, and it was made out of thousands of little rubies, and it pulsated 70 beats per minute, and it was in a glass case. All of this stuff, you know, and I looked at this work, and I said, and again, this life doesn't is what it appears to be, and I realized that out of the mind, which is what we all are, we think we're bodies, but we're really mind, and the mind that's separate from the, the real mind, uh, that's where our, our ego takes over, but I realized that there was such a vast universe within all the universes that we were creating besides this collective universe made up of phantasmagorical realities that were just as real or unreal as the one I, we were and are living in today. And this is where you're referring to this inner voice that, that is erupting. 
So you continue this journey and you're now traveling and you've traveled for many years and you are finding the diversity in life that you refer to. Now, at some stage here, Robert, I'm assuming that you then return back to the United States, given that I, I'm assuming you've been abroad. Now, coming back to the United States and coming back into this world of materialism and consumerism, uh, how did that feel after this incredible journey that you took? Well, it's kind of amazing because, you know, uh, I, I also want to say that part of my, uh, the great mystery of my life, and we all look at our lives and view the mysteries, I was sort of going, as I traveled around the world, I found myself and have continued to find myself witness to many catastrophic events throughout the world. Like, it's sort of... Um, uh, Forrest Gump. It seems like I would f- appear in different parts of the world exactly at the wrong time or the right time, depending on how you want to look at it. And um, when I came back to the United States, I, it was at a time when we were really going through a, a major shift. I had flown in. Uh, I, the many years that I was out of the United States were in segments. The first part of my life uh, after college I spent in Asia. I spent many years in Japan and India and traveled around China and the Southeast Asia area. And then I came back to the United States via Hawaii for a minute and arrived in San Francisco during the Moscone Harvey Milk assassination. Uh, right into the middle of that sort of uh, the gay revolution that was happening there. And then I jumped back out of the United States within a year and moved to Europe and then spent another eight years in Europe, mostly living in Italy. When I came back to the United States uh, from that experience, which we're looking at, this is like 1988, around there, 1989, I I didn't even know what an ATM machine was. Uh, I was with my nephew, and he had gone into like uh, uh, one of these... uh, 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 convenience stores, and he put a card in, and he got the money out, and I was like, wow, you, you can now put, you know, plastic in machines, and it gives you money. That was a totally new awareness for me, and it was like, he laughed, he says, well, it's not any money, it's your money. And so that began sort of this whole world of credit cards. Uh, living in Europe and Asia, there were no credit cards. I mean, there was Diners Club or whatever. The technology was not there. Uh, people were still meeting uh, within, especially in the countries I lived in, the piazzas or the, the, the center marketplaces in the evening. That's where everybody gathered to communicate, to talk, to have diversity, to drink cafes, whatever they were doing. We would all, people would gather. There was gatherings all over the the world, and you could always meet new friends, meet new, uh, make new friends, and have acquaintances and conversation. Coming back to the United States, really having been gone since I was 22, 23 years of age, uh, out of college, what I didn't realize is that the U.S. did not have these places where people gathered and continued on to, you know, here we are, 2010. Still the same feeling. I mean, Starbucks is the most we can talk about uh, as a gathering place, but then people don't really go there to talk to each other. Uh, bookstores are not a place that people go to talk. I've never really found yet where people go to communicate and connect. I know the Internet is the new way of chatting and talking to people, but there's a profound difference to me in the way that we uh, uh, live a life uh, in America than the rest of the world, and it's it really I want to say it's like us and them. The rest of the world has a sense of community and, and and conversation and talks to each other. We do not really do that. It's very isolated. Um, 
I first moved back. I was living in a suburb for about a minute, and I didn't, I couldn't handle it because it was so separated. People drove into garages that were opened up automatically. Their car went in, the garage went down. There was no one walking on the sidewalks or streets. Most kids were not playing in the streets. They were in backyards or wherever. You heard television sets, but you never and heard dogs barking, but you didn't see anybody. How, how did you feel at that time? How, how was this something that you were reluctant to to drop yourself back into after that? that world that you had seen in places like Asia? I was, but you know, you know, I have a deep love of my family and friend of, uh, in America, and I was really grateful that I made the choice to come back. While I was gone, uh, while I was abroad, my father had passed away when I was very young, uh, while I was in Japan, and I was watching people get older. My sisters were having children. They were growing up. I, I just felt totally disconnected from my family. And one of the things the living in Italy especially did for me uh, was very formative for me was that the idea of this community, uh, that people all were connected. There was interconnectivity. Um, people ate together. They laughed together. They, they were healthier, more vibrant to me. And I, I, wanted, I wanted to come back and see how that was going to be with my family. So I got an opportunity to spend many years with my family and their children and uh, connect with that sort of community and, uh, you know, all of us sort of grow together in our awareness instead of being disconnected from it. I felt I felt a little responsibility to be the prodigal son, if that makes any sense. Come home, you know, and bring with me all the gifts that the world had shared with me, sort of pay it forward to America, and here I stay. Now, around this time, you have this catastrophic car accident. Now, you talk about mm -hmm. this... Uh, whatever consciousness I have here, I take with me through the looking glass. And you're talking at this stage about a, a deeper level of awareness. And my goodness me, I'm sure that anybody going through a catastrophic, a catastrophic event would uh, feel different. But you also talk about a beingness um, and finding out that everything else is temporary and, and, and changes. Could you tell me what you mean about beingness, um, and you you also you you also use other words uh, apart from that uh, doingness. Um, what what are these all about? What are you trying to state with these words? Well, uh, they definitely relate to an event that happened to me. Uh, you know, and I've spent a lot of time talking to and interviewing other people throughout my life now. Sort of like once you've had a close encounter of the third kind, you're out there, you know, talking to other people who have share common common ground with you. And for me, it was definitely a close encounter, and it was a close encounter the first time. I was in a catastrophic car wreck on the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Uh, our car flipped nine times and went off a cliff, and my two friends were uh, killed in the car wreck almost immediately. I was pretty much skinned alive um, after the car flipped several times before it went off a cliff and they found me on the highway with one shoe on my clothes had been completely ripped off my body um so i had major 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 uh issues that broke most of bones i hematoma all my major organs uh, for all practical purposes in real terms i shouldn't be here at all during that process however uh while i was laying on the highway and like three o'clock in the morning in the dead of night i did not know whether I was dead or alive, and uh, then was very aware that I was 
um, n- no longer in my body, uh, and very present. I was very present and very aware that I was still who I was. And um, as, since there's since time and space is something that we've created, uh, I was at a moment in my life that I realized that also because when the ambulance, the people in the cars and all that arrived, which seemed like moments later, and of course none of this happens in moments when we're living it, um, I was very aware of what was going on with them dealing with my body and trying to resuscitate it and put it in the ambulance and, you know, the people there and all this that was going on, I was very much aware of it, but I wasn't separate from it. It's just that I didn't, I wasn't attached to what was happening. I had no expectation. And then I realized that I wasn't in my body. That was the sort of the thing that happened. It was like, like when we're in a dream and we wake up in the dream, you know, and you have that moment where you go, oh, I'm dreaming, but I'm still asleep. Um, that was the kind of thing that happened to me. But what was really clear with that was that the only thing that was different from being in the body of Robert Peace and not any longer being a part of the body, Robert Peace, was the only thing that really occurred was that I stopped breathing. And other than that, who I was was the same. Uh, I brought with me to the other side everything that I, all the tools that I have acquired from here and was very, very aware of that. Um, where I was going with that was, it had not been revealed yet because obviously I was not going to be fully dead um, and eventually was resuscitated and brought back into my body and then spent several weeks in a coma uh, in uh, Italian hospitals before being put in body traction for over a year. Um, but it was an extraordinary experience of presence. And what happened with that is that the understanding that we're, we, we think we're doing something. We really think we're out here doing something. Again, here's this holographic projection of our mind uh, sh- uh, projected out into form that we're calling the body. And the body is then projecting out through the five senses. It believes it can see and touch and hear and smell and taste all this, but really we know just in theoretical terms, that none of this is really here. Um, if anything, we think maybe it's like energy moving and we're, we're, we're sensing all of that and we're giving it form uh, through our mind. What I was aware of at that moment is that the doingness is sort of a, robot, a robotic state, that we have already done this, we've already created this, this has already happened, and that in a way we're just, we are remembering it. We are replaying this movie over and over again and uh, believing that what we're seeing is real. So I, 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 I had that moment, that, that big epiphany when I was dead, and came back with that, and it shifted my consciousness forever. Is, is that in an, another way of saying that, that anything we do, whenever we do it, past or present, is, is fully in line with God, our Creator, wants for us? Is, is, do you understand my question? Is I it? do, and there's a lot to say about that from different uh, philosophies and, 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 spe- and teachers today and from the past, depending on how you look at it. One school of thought is that, you know, God, there is only God. God is, and that uh, outside of that is us being believing we're separate from it. And in the separateness, we have created the universe, we have created fear, and we have created all that we think is this Big Bang. The Big Bang itself is the separation of 
uh, the Son or the human experience from the Father or from God. You know, we have to use words that, you know, or instead of calling it it. That's one really deep school of thought, uh, the idea that, you know, we did not, that God did not create fear, God did not create any of this. We are the ones who actually created all of this. And uh, it's really just this great dream that once we awaken from, which we will all awaken from at that very moment individually and then eventually collectively as the one, it will be as if it never happened. So, so we never left heaven to begin with. We just are in a nightmare thinking we are outside of heaven itself. And you and you've summed that up, everything that you've just mentioned with this phrase, universal life. Would that be correct? Yes, because it is, you know, this life that we're having uh, as a collective consciousness. You know, if we just look at the psychology of Jung and all the different, you know, the, the Freud yes. and all these guys, when they talked about the idea of, you know, we, the, what the universe is, if we, we look to understanding that this universal mind uh, is much larger than a universe, it's outside of what we believe to be true, and that's where the great delusion is for all of us is that we think we can find it within this madness but the madness itself is the problem <laughs> we have to actually rise above it as jung suggested into a new state of awareness beyond this madness and then once we do we realize i guess that's the aha or the nirvana that this madness was just wasn't real to begin with now is that mandate uh, something that we have to do on an individual level or is it something ultimately that we have to do on a collective uh, thinking process well, sir, we all have to do it collectively. The bottom line here, and that's the other voice that continued for many years in my life, was no one gets left behind. Uh, not the, the not the weakest, not the the the, the missing link, and the the smartest, the dumbest, the, the brightest, the shallowest, whatever we want to judge ourselves as. Since we are part of the one, uh, all of it, w the oneness has to be collectively realized. So, yes, individually we can attain a state of nirvana that gives, gives us an enlightenment, which is the first step. And that's what's happening now. There are millions and millions of people. I mean, where there's 6.6 .6 billion people on the planet, but literally we're going critical mass on this. Millions of people are waking up. And when I say waking up, I want to suggest that that means that we are becoming aware that we're asleep. Now, let me just interrupt there so that you can continue with this. We've got quite a bit to do here in the next 15 minutes. And I'm quoting from you, I was asked at an early age if I would participate with the shift and received information daily to connect with the higher self, to share the messages that will enable you to connect to the one higher love in this climate of change, the, referring to this climate of change, is that now, is that what you're talking about here, this, this mass uh, uh, situation that we're, we're approaching here, this, this crazy time that we're approaching? Well, I don't think we're approaching anymore. I think we're in it. I think we are, you know, more and more fully aware that there is an extra, there is a, a collective insanity going on on this planet. We, uh, as a as a, a humanity, and I use the word as as one, are beginning to recognize that you know the things that we are creating uh, is um, you know is devastating and um, painful and brutalizing. The murder, the mayhem, the war, the famine, all of that, which of course, has always been going on you know, throughout history, 
you know, is collectively growing, you know, because the population is extended out there. And people are waking up to the insanity of this and going, well, wait a second, is this what I'm choosing? Am I choosing this? And that's a question that I, I, we don't see historically asked in our historical literature philosophies collectively. And more and more collectively we're asking, are we choosing peace or, and freedom through, you know, peace, the quiet mind? Or are we choosing this madness, this warrior, you know, thing? What are we choosing? Because there's really only two things to choose. There's either choosing love or choosing fear. And you, you quote uh, later on, uh, truth is liquid. Um, now, there are many theologians who would say there is only one truth, and that is God's truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it, this word liquid, that you're using here? What is the context in which that is used? Well, again, for me, when I say the truth is liquid, is to kind of gestalt the consciousness uh, the same way that Buddha talked about, if you see me on the road, kill me, to his disciples, right? It was like, what? what you, we'd never do that, but it was this just sort of a gestalt mindset that we want to get ourselves into is that all the truth that we believe to be and anything that I say is an opinion of that is is liquid, it's changing, it's constantly fluid, therefore it cannot be truth. Um, it is if it's if it's mo- if it's changing, then it's something that we have created. If it's constant, then it's that of God. And since God is and God is and we use the word love or the you know, perfection, that which is only perfect, uh, then anything beyond that is something that we, that is man-made. And for us to finally understand that all of this is man-made, that we have created this mass illusion, this illusion really as a way of, um, as maybe the Buddha also suggested, was a way of creating the pain in order to realize that we don't want to be in pain and that the only way out of suffering you know, we want to rise above the suffering, so in order to do that, we propel ourselves into a new way of thinking and acting. We, don't, we no longer are the martyr, we become the teacher. Now, you, you go on to metaphysical science, and I'm assuming that that's something that, that, that appeared later in life, and you, you got a doctorate in this. Where was it that you, you brought in metaphysical science to, to uh, aid or, or assist in, in this mindset, in this journey that you're taking, in this realization of this world that we're living in? Well, again, it's been a lifelong study. I have, uh, but you know, st- I studied the whole spectrum from occultism to Wicca to theology to all the world religions. You know, traveling to the the, the, the ashrams and the mausoleums throughout the world. I uh, had spent time, you know, wanting to be a monk, but it was never to be my journey to do that. But wh- where it has led me for today's, re- uh, I, what I'm doing today is that. You know, when you, we look at the choices out there of how we can communicate, and that's really what we're doing. We're having a conversation now. Um, you know, did I want to do it through being a politician? Did I want to do it through being, you know, a, a, a healer, a medical person, a lawyer? You know, whatever profession that uh, I wanted to use as an avenue to have a conversation with people, I found that the broadest spectrum was metaphysics, which simply means other than the physical world, uh, because it, you know, we, it's outside of the form. So my studies has always been that. And of course, over the past many years, you now can get degrees in uh, you know, spirituality, whereas you know, that's, this is fairly new stuff. You know, it's like a course in miracles. It's only been around since the 
uh, mid-70s, we have a lot of uh, um, thought form, again, coming from the source, that's relatively different than the way we've been thinking for a while. So a lot of it we're just now beginning to sort of wake up to. But you must nevertheless have this methodology, uh, these steps that you take in in mentoring and training people to become more engaged and inspired. I do. I've got, you know, of course my book is is actually a how-to book. I never really thought of myself as a self-help guru or any of that, but, you know, I see that, um, you know, there's a lot of, we're living in a symbolic universe, so I figured the best way to open up the doorway for us to get out of here, uh, out of this madness in this universe we've created is using the very symbols that mean that the, the universe itself is using everything is symbolic. So I'm a big fan of numerology, uh, Pythagorean numerology, um, uh, you know, cards, pictures, all of that uh, as tools to help people understand that, you know, this is a symbolic universe. And if we can understand the signs around us of what it is that we are, you know, we think we're, we're looking at, but we're actually creating, they're like actually breadcrumbs um, that are leading us back out of this madness. The incredible thing about the, the uh, God is that uh, the the perfect the perfect self has given us the way home. We're not left stranded out here in a limousine, trying to figure it out on our own. Uh, I call it the inner knower. There's a part of us that knows beyond the game, the the guilt and shame that there is something much more wonderful than anything that we can create ourselves, and that is what's leading us there. So I offer tools. I have workshops. Uh, I'm a huge fan of imagination. Um, I once read Einstein had quoted as saying that imagination is more important than knowledge, and I thought coming from that level of genius, wow. So I started pursuing imagination about 15 years ago. So I teach courses on imagination and what it is and how we can use that as a doorway beyond the insanity. If we if we look at this uh, pragmatically and we, mm-hmm. we look at the situation, we see so many people are hurting, so many people are suffering from this what I call a profound lack of confidence globally. Uh, would you like to uh, give me your thoughts on on how we are going to be able to unbury ourselves out of the uh, out of the situation that we we find ourselves in now? Well, we will, and we are already. I mean, you know, again, from my point of view, my POV is that this has already happened, and we're just living it out. Yes, that means there. I do believe in predetermination. Uh, and predestination that this is just a repeat and we're all leading we're all very important pieces to the collective coming together as the one and it's important that we understand that we're not getting a lot of information through the political mindset the religious mindset the educational mindset that offers us that kind of information and i think that's where the voice is growing that you know if we understand the value and the importance of each one of us on the planet to do what it is that we do to live the life that we live no matter what it is and not really you know overly attached to it and you know think that this is the only way it can be because you know i'm separate from everybody else and my pain is unique because we if anyone who's been through extraordinary pain will tell you that it's the common uh, thread that we all have uh... suffering is something if you have suffered that you have a common ground with everyone else on the planet who has suffered. There is a there is a there is a, a connection there. So I think we are at a place that you know, 
if we're teaching anything, we're teaching people to understand that it's, it's, it's okay, that everything is okay. It's really exactly how it's supposed to be. Um, let go of being attached and hooked into the movie, however, and thinking that this is real, uh, that we will move through this, and we are moving through it, and we will move in and out it as, until ultimately we return back home. This is where you refer to uh, shifting the, the general consciousness, everybody's consciousness, to knowing that we are the beings of light. Absolutely, and we already are doing that. I mean, that voice has been moving through our core uh, as humanity since the dawn of man, or since the Big Bang, whatever we want to call it. We are definitely at a place of what I call resurrection, but more importantly, I think it's the atonement. And the atonement comes through the healing, and I believe that all this pain and suffering that we call it, because we attach to it, we hook into it, we, we feel it, all happens in the mind. It doesn't happen in the body. It happens in the mind. Our new biologists, our new scientists are showing us more and more that uh, everything comes from the mind, even everything that we create in the body. Uh, there are books about it now, uh, new books about it. But once we realize that the healing takes place in the mind, that it doesn't take place in the body, then we begin to make the shift that's necessary for the atonement through healing to create what is called a miracle. And the miracle is that we wake up and we know that we are home, that we have clicked our heels, our eyes are closed, we've opened it back up, and we are home. There was The journey there was important because we thought we had to take it, and on the way we found our courage and our heart and our mind, uh, and that we believed it was separated from us, and with that we had the confidence to take the journey home. And we arrive at that place, and it's as if we never left. And, and this is where we're changing our thoughts and changing our biology at the same time? Absolutely, because we're changing our view, and I really believe it's a point of view, because again, I view everything as a movie, that we are shifting our point of view collectively, and as our point of view or our POV shifts, with that shifting, then everything that we are creating actually begins to disappear. What would be the evidence that you see in the world today that is, is supporting that theory? Well, I find the evidence within myself. Um, again, we don't have to look any farther than our own backyard, as it was thought of in Dorothy's time. Uh, the evidence is within myself. So if we're looking for a validation or an affirmation or an opportunity to understand awareness, we only have to look at ourselves. And we see how much differently we are uh, in our awareness than we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Everyone who will tell you, no matter what level of awareness they're playing at, that they are not the same person they were 20 years ago. With all that said, though, to, to change the world in the materialistic world that we have here today, in, in our industry, in our economics, in our social makeup, would you agree that, that somehow today we're going to see somebody, a prolific leader, who is going to arrive here and, and be so uh, strong, so determined that, that it could take a leader or a small group of leaders to actually move people into thinking this way, to having this group consciousness? Well, again, I believe awareness happens at the grassroots with each one of us. And as far as a leader uh, or a path, I call it a path to God, we're always externalizing our experience to 
to, to look for a path to God. And um, as I suggest in my work, is that, you know, there's nobody going to rescue us. The aliens are not going to come down and beam us up. You know, the, the sky isn't going to part, and there's going to be this great voice that says, you know, everything is okay. There is no rescue mission here on Earth. And I think that's one of the things that as we shift and we begin to realize that there is not a singular person that's going to shift the consciousness of the, the of humanity. It's all of humanity as one that will shift the consciousness and return home to love. It will take all of us, and we are, you know, we have all the time in the universe because we created the universe, and there is no such thing as time and space to begin with. And the the children of today, what would you be saying to them now in uh, being encouraged and enlightened to having a wonderful future? Well, the only thing any of us are doing, including the children, and are doing this is breathing uh, in and out. And when we quiet down within ourselves, we hear our heartbeat. So the doing this is the heartbeat, which suggests to me the great story that what we're doing is we're growing and we're evolving and we're expanding our awareness. And I would tell the children today to just keep on keeping on growing, expanding your awareness and, uh, you know, being kind to each other. That is the, the real journey for all of us is to remember love through kindness and to forgive everybody, because when we forgive others, we really are forgiving ourselves. In the final couple of minutes, uh, Robert, what is your own personal goals, objectives now with your career, with what you do, and what is it that you absolutely love about what you're doing now with your life? Well, you know, I love the part where I um, have stopped pushing. You know, we go through different phases of our consciousness and our awareness, and one of the ones that I have recently gone through in the last year, because I do so much touring and I talk to so many people and I'm, you know, doing so many things I'm in, a, I'm always doing, um, that in the beingness, I've realized also that it's not about the pushing. It's about, you know, really allowing, uh, affirming that, you know, it's all, it's all good, it's all right, it's all exactly what it's supposed to be. and letting go of even more of my own personal judgments about myself and the doing this, and it allows me in, into being more of who I already am as a role model uh, for myself. So I'm just uh, enjoying the, that part and allowing that to express itself and however it's going to be moving forward. You know, I'm writing new books. I get to travel a lot. I have a great opportunity to connect with people, and I think the more that we connect with each other, the more we realize how much we are exactly the same. Is that not uh, good advice for everybody at this stage to, to let go, to be less pensive, to have less fear about the world that we live in, and to find that sense of community that we should be finding in each other now? Yeah, you've said that very eloquently. Uh, it's important to remember that we created fear. God did not create fear. God is love. So if we're creating a fear, then guess who can uh, uncreate it? We have the opportunity to really allow ourselves to change the way that we view ourselves in our you know point of view, and then. The way, the easiest way to do that is to change our view of other people and no longer see everyone as outside of ourselves, as separate, as uh, different, as unique. Uh, it's really beyond I am that. It's really an embracing that, you know what, I forgive everything. In fact, I forgive the universe. 
Dr. Robert Pease, it's been extremely rewarding uh, today to talk to you on this program. I, I do thank you and I wish you so much luck in the future with, with all your very important work. And you as well, David. Thank you for having me on your show. It's been a delight. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, I do appreciate you joining us today as well. Hope you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. If you require information on this or any other program in the series, please do visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.